Good morning. Please stand. Today's reading is going to come from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 10, verses 46 through 52, that can be found on page 494 in the Bibles that are placed in the little pockets in the back of the seats. And for anyone who may need um, one there for you to take. Hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. God, that you've left us a record of your dealings with frail humanity. God, that we can look at these things, that we can extract the nectar of these stories, God, and and be refreshed and be encouraged in our faith, Lord, and, and look to you in the same hope that a blind beggar crying out had 2,000 years ago. And Lord, I pray that as this story is once again brought to the forefront of our minds, that you would allow your spirit to just move among us and find people, God, who when they hear that Jesus is passing by, that they would they would spring to their feet and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Lord, I pray that your word would not, as you have promised that it would not, that it would not return to you empty and void, but that it would accomplish exactly what you intend for it to accomplish. And Lord, that is our hope. That is our confidence. That's our faith this morning. And so, Lord, all that remains is for you to help us to hear, for you to help me to preach. God, in ways that in both the hearing and the proclaiming bring honor and glory to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good to have you all here this morning. We uh, have been journeying through the book of Mark for some time now. I think we started the first week in February. This is our 37th message in the book of Mark. And we've got several more to go. But what is happening today is the end of the what I would say the second section of the book of Mark. 
There's, if, if you looked at them, not only in chapters, but in, in, in literary sections, this is the end of a section of the book. Chapters 1 through 7, that we talked about several months ago, established Jesus as the king of a promised kingdom. He said that the kingdom that he had promised was at hand, and we saw Jesus proclaiming the, the truths and mysteries of this kingdom to the masses. Everywhere he spoke, crowds gathered. And he taught them with just direct teachings. He taught them in parables. But more than that, we saw him, although his emphasis, as we've said over and over, was on the word that he was teaching, we saw him miraculously heal the sick. We saw him uh, uh, just evict demons and demonic powers out of people. We saw Jesus challenged by Pharisees and scribes who were not happy with him and and his uh, spin on the way that thing, they thought things should be. And we know that one of them was right and one of them was wrong and Jesus was right. And so we also saw him consistently silence them and all their accusations and all their protests. Beginning in chapter 8, though, We've seen Jesus from this emphasis on speaking and doing miracles before the crowds. We've seen the emphasis of Jesus, the focus of Jesus, narrow considerably. And now in these last three chapters, he's been explaining primarily to his disciples the principles on which this kingdom that he proclaimed would operate. He told them how they should perceive themselves and also, in the light of how they perceive themselves, how they should conduct themselves. The high points of chapters 8 through 10 include Christ's transfiguration, where all his glory, all of his divinity were unveiled before the eyes of his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And in those same chapters, 8, 9, and 10, we've heard Jesus vividly predict his suffering his arrest, his humiliation, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, three separate times where he makes no bones about what is about to happen to him once he reaches Jerusalem. Now, in spite of these clear explanations, this has been pretty much the subject of our last several messages, in spite of these clear explanations, in spite of these clear revelations of Christ's true identity, of his true mission, the disciples remain virtually clueless. Remember what happened the first time that Jesus told them that he would suffer and die and rise again? Well, Peter pulls him aside and literally rebukes him sharply for even saying such a thing. Later on, the disciples, in the light of his prediction, argue among themselves about which one of them is the greatest after Jesus had just said that he would die and be resurrected. And then last week we saw how James and John, two of his inner circle, come to Jesus and make the request, the very bold request, I might add, to be the top lieutenant in his kingdom. Now they show a remarkable ability to underestimate their spiritual need. Now if you were to kind of do some self-analysis here, not by the show of hands, I wouldn't do that to you, but have you ever radically underestimated what you needed from the Lord Jesus? Well, this is where the disciples are. 
And so Jesus, on a couple of occasions, informs them that the greatest esteem will not be granted to the one who had the boldness to ask to be the top lieutenant, but those who become like children. It would be given to those who willingly take the lowest place on the totem pole and those who consider themselves to be the servants and even the slaves of everyone else. But in the blazing light of Christ's glory and the transfiguration, his humility in these predictions, these guys remain, for the most part, hyper-patriotic political opportunists. They, they're, they're focused on one thing. They want Jesus to, to uh, throw the Romans out, establish the kingdom of Israel forever and ever, and do it politically and do it militarily. That's what their mind is on. And there's another... When we look at, when we're, as we're reviewing, as we're finishing this section today, as we review chapters 8 through 10, there's another very, very interesting dimension of this section of Mark. You know what that is? Well, it begins, this section begins with the healing of a blind man. That's how this section starts. And it ends, as Lita just read to us, with the healing of a blind man. What's the significance of that? These healings constitute the literary bookends of this section. And because this is the divinely inspired word of God, something we affirm, we don't think that this is just a random coincidence. Would you agree with me with that? So in Mark, let me just give you a little quick review. We preached on this several weeks ago, but in Mark 8, 22 through 26, a blind man is brought to Jesus by his friends. This man doesn't seek out Jesus on his own. He doesn't even cry out for him. He's kind of dragged to Jesus. He's brought by loving friends who believe on his behalf. And Jesus spits on his eyes. He lays his hands on his eyes. And then he asks him this question. He says, Do you see anything? And there's been this obvious improvement in his vision, but he reports that the men that he sees look like walking trees. And and, and so obviously there's a problem. This man's healing is incomplete. It's not done. It's not finished. So Jesus lays his hands on him again. Mark tells us his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And this incomplete healing, you can go back and listen to the message, we talked at length about this, this incomplete healing was not because of some defect in Jesus' power. Jesus' batteries weren't running low that day. Jesus' batteries never run low in that sense. It was Jesus' sovereign decision to perform this miracle in this way to demonstrate that he has complete patience with us, with you and with me, as we recover our spiritual sight. And aren't you glad that is the case? What if Jesus laid his hands on us spiritually and said, what do you see? And said, well, I see, but it's still so unclear. And he said, well, I'm sorry, that's the best I can do for you. That would be a terrible state of affairs. But oh, Jesus keeps touching us. He keeps asking us. He keeps working until our sight is restored. He's so patient with fallen people like us. Praise God. 
And this becomes clear. The, the, the message of this healing becomes absolutely crystal clear in the remainder of chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. The disciples are constantly getting these revelations from him, whether it be through the transfiguration, these three predictions, and the magnitude of which they still aren't quite grasping. But what does he do? He never says, you knuckleheads, you idiots, what is wrong with you? How many times do I have to tell you directly what's going to happen to me? And here you come at me. Well, who's the greatest? Who's the best? Who gets to be in charge? Jesus never does that. He patiently teaches them. He corrects them. He guides them. He loves them. Oh, man. What else could we possibly ask for in a Savior? So here we are at the end of this section. What happens when we come to the very end, tail end of chapter 10? We read these words, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, Jesus has arrived in Jericho. We've talked for several weeks that he's traveling south. He's making his way into Jerusalem to see the fulfillment of those predictions that he's made. And Jericho is just 18 miles to the north of his final destination in Jerusalem. Still a fairly long distance when you're traveling on foot. But another distinction, this is not the Old Testament city that you're familiar with, that Joshua and his armies marched around seven times and they shouted and the walls fell down. This is a different, a newer Jericho. It's a it's a desert oasis community where weary pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem could stop and refresh themselves and gain their strength for that last leg of the trip. And And so what this meant, because... It was on the main highway into Jerusalem. This meant a lot of foot traffic because, you know, religious Jews were required to go to Jerusalem a lot and they were required to bring sacrifices and come to the temple. And so this meant a lot of foot traffic, which is probably the reason that Bartimaeus has chosen this specific spot to sit and beg. More people walking by meant what? More opportunity for this unfortunate man to receive alms from the ones in the crowd who were generous enough to give to him. And in the first century, this would have been his only means of financial support. Now, let's think about that for a minute because we live in a different time. Oftentimes, you and I will see people standing on street corners with signs, will be approached by people in the parking lot of Walmart, and they're begging for money. And, and immediately, our reaction oftentimes is to ask internal questions. We ask questions like, in this economy, why isn't this person working? Everybody's got a sign on their building, you know, now hiring. What has he done with, you know, maybe you've seen him several days in a row and you say, what has he done with the money he's begged for on previous days? And and you ask questions like, is the money that I would give him going to be squandered in support of some addiction? Now we ask these questions Because poverty in 21st century America is different than poverty literally in any other time in human history. It's different. Because we live in a time, and we live in the in the confines of a country that has a vast social welfare network. Comparatively, few people, I'm not saying that nobody's left out of the system, but comparatively few people are left without the most basic provisions thanks to government handouts. 
And today, even the most severely handicapped can be often be given some level of job training, some level of job skill, and, and opportunities to garner some level of subsistence for themselves. And the reason I mention all that is not to make any kind of political statement about the goodness or badness of that. It's just the way things are. But here's why I want you to understand that. Because literally no such programs existed in Bartimaeus' day. If a handicapped person, like a blind man, had no family who were willing to support them, they were condemned to a life of homelessness and begging. And because of this, people like Bartimaeus occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder. Few people would even acknowledge them. You know how we always do? You kind of divert your eyes when the guy's holding the sign. You look straight ahead at the stoplight. People wouldn't even acknowledge him. Much fewer people would actually give to them. And Mark tells us that when Jesus came into Jericho, he was followed by the twelve, but also a great crowd. And Luke says in his account that this commotion made Bartimaeus ask the question, hey, what is going on? I'm hearing noise of a lot of feet going by. A lot of murmuring, a lot of, you know, happy voices. What is happening? And so Mark says in verse 47, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now think about that. Just just take a little moment of examination about what we just read. So we're hot on the heels of Jesus' own disciples jockeying for position. And in that recent circumstance, a blind, insignificant beggar comes to two incredible theological conclusions. Now, think about that. This man was not a theologian. He, this is not somebody who, you know, went blind after his years in seminary. And yet he shows remarkable perception in the cry that he makes. Let me explain. These theological conclusions, for the most part, the disciples have failed at this point to discover, to discern. But but his discovery, his discernment, this blind man is seen first in who he cries out to and secondly in what he cries out for. See, first, who is he told is passing by? He's told Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. We've talked about this. Jesus is a celebrity. Jesus, because of his acts of power, his teachings, his confrontations with the Pharisees, everybody knows his name. Jesus of Nazareth. This guy from humble beginnings. He's from the, the middle of nowhere. And he's passing by now. But he's told that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and that's not who he cries out for. He does not say, hey, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, come here, from Nazareth, come here. He cries out to Jesus, the son of David. And that refers to Jesus' messianic identity as the king of Israel. 
The one who will sit on David's throne. See, what faith does and what Bartimaeus' faith did, it properly identifies Christ. Faith as a gift from God allows you to, to see God for who He is and know Him in His real identity. Not the figment of your imagination, but the truth of how He reveals Himself in the Word. He properly identified Christ. He looked beyond His human origin. His family background. He saw the son of David. But secondly, unlike his disciples who were pursuing status and position in the very last section of this chapter, he cries out for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. What is he saying? He's recognizing rightly that he has no bargaining chips whatsoever. And anything that he receives will be because of Christ's goodness and not because of his own worthiness. This real world beggar wants Christ's mercy in this moment more than he wants his money. See, it's not unusual for us to find people around us, surrounding us, who misidentify Jesus because they have no eyes of faith to see him for who he really is. And so what they do is they say, well, Jesus, yeah, he was a great teacher. Some people on the more mystical side will almost equate him as some kind of wizard. Others on a more political nature will see him as a radical revolutionary. But see, faith, when it looks at Jesus, it sees Him as the King. It sees Him as the Lord to whom we are accountable. And similarly, it's common for us to desire all kinds of temporal trinkets from Him. If Jesus would just do this, if Jesus would just do that, my hands are out, Jesus, fill my hands. We want better stuff, we want more comfortable circumstances, but what we really need from Jesus is abundant mercy. Well, I don't think any of us would be surprised to find out that the crowd was not at all happy about all the ruckus this dirty little hobo was making. And so in verse 48 we read, and many rebuked him. Hey, 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 cool your jets, dude. Settle down. There's somebody important walking by. Says they were telling him to be silent. Jesus doesn't have time for this. Did you hear, did you hear what Isaiah said, Bartimaeus? He's, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He doesn't have time for you right now. See, self-righteous rule-keeping people don't like it when you make a scene. They choose rather to keep up appearances. And they're sure, they're absolutely certain that God frowns on passion like Bartimaeus is displaying right now. See, they thought that Bartimaeus was a nuisance, that he was a public menace. And frankly, they didn't like that he was embarrassing them in front of this Nazarene prophet, this miracle worker, this great teacher. They wanted him to shut up and go away. (laughs) But he wouldn't be silenced. He wouldn't be denied. See, his physical eyes obviously were trapped in darkness, but the eyes of faith had seen the Savior clearly. But he cried out all the more, Mark tells us, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
He was like the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, who when he tried, the Bible tells us, to stop speaking for God, Jeremiah said his words were like fire shut up in his bones and he could not be silent. Bartimaeus was reaching out to someone he could not see physically to receive something that he could not live without. Hebrews 11 tells us that true faith is the assurance, the concrete assurance of things hoped for, the absolutely certain conviction of things not seen. Faith is a gift from God. It is born of God. It's not just our wishful thinking. I used to be in a theological world where people often told me, I have faith for this and I have faith for that and I have faith for this and and on and on and on it went. But it never came to anything because it was just that. It was their strongly desire, strong desires verbalized as faith. But because of the nature of real faith, genuine faith is impossible to silence. It won't be satisfied until it receives what it is crying out for. So the crowds are telling Bartimaeus to shut up. Imagine the shockwave that went through that crowd when the same Jesus they were trying to protect from this annoying homeless guy says, hey, call him over here. Well, their attitude and their tone changed in a heartbeat. All of a sudden, they became a crowd of Jesus' yes men. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Last week we talked about Jesus' unwavering determination to proceed to Jerusalem and complete his mission. But while that didn't change, what you need to see is that his mission included a pause to attend to the cry of one who called his name for help. And this wasn't an insignificant beggar to Jesus Christ. He was a son of Abraham. Christ had come to seek and to save those who were lost, and that included Bartimaeus. Now, let's let's be honest. Somebody locked the door so nobody who doesn't belong here can't get in and see us being honest with each other, but are we ever apathetic towards the lost, towards the insignificant, towards those who sin differently than us? You'll have to think about this, but I'm convinced it's true. Do our lives, or or sadly, even sometimes our words, ever say, be to those who are, you know, vile and different. Do we ever say, hey, be silent. Shut up, sit down. Jesus is way too holy. He's way too important for you to take his holy name on your lips. But how would this world benefit if we attuned our ears to listen to all the subtle ways that people at work, people at school, and people in our neighborhoods are crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. How would God be glorified by our sensitivity for the people he cares for. What if we made it our default position 
to look for ways to say to those who are dying in sin in this fallen world all around us, hey, take heart. Get up. He's calling you. What if that were our default position? And that was all Bartimaeus needed to hear. He threw aside his beggar's cloak. He leapt to his feet. He stumbled in the darkness toward the sound of Jesus' voice. Let's look at those things. First, Bartimaeus threw off his cloak. That cloak represented something. It was what he draped around his shoulders for comfort. It was what he spread out before him to collect the coins that people threw at him. It represented, that cloak represented his identity. The hand that life had dealt him. And he freely cast it behind him. Some people will say in an emotional moment that they are coming to Jesus for a future. But once they have a religious moment, all they can do is talk about their past. Their whole identity is rooted in childhood traumas and bad decisions and sinful habits and past regrets. They wear those things like a cloak. They take comfort in them. Well, you don't understand what I've been through. And they beg for emotional support on the basis of what they've been through. But my friend, let me graciously remind you that the Bible says, if any man, if any woman is in Christ, they are a new creation. All the old stuff is gone. Everything is made new. You're forgiven. You're robed in perfect righteousness. You're given a new identity. You are no longer a son of Adam. You are a child of the king. So what do you got to do? You got to cast the old you away and walk into an entirely new reality. That's not all Mark says. Second, Mark says he sprang up. He made an immediate, enthusiastic move. He did not hesitate. He did not ponder the risk. He did not say, what if, what if, what if. He got moving. Second Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Lastly, what did he do once he sprang to his feet? He came to Jesus. He could have made all kinds of reasonable excuses. He couldn't see, for goodness sakes. How could he even find Jesus? But in that reality, he stood up in the prison of darkness he'd been born into, and he moved towards the light in Jesus' person and in Jesus' voice. And he knew that if he couldn't find Jesus, Jesus was well able to find him. Sometimes we decry our way as way too dark. We say the Bible's too hard to understand. We say, well, we're not really spiritual or religious people. But can you love the darkness so much that you won't even try to make a move towards his voice? Stop Trying to think about all the deep theological mysteries in the Word of God that you don't understand. 
Jesus said to come and Bartimaeus moved towards him. Can you obey the simplest command knowing that Christ will assist you as you try to keep his word? Verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, think. For those of you who heard last week. Back in verse 36 of the same chapter, Jesus asked James and John verbatim the exact same question. What do you want me to do for you? What did they want? They wanted a top job. They wanted to rule. What a contrast we see in Bartimaeus's humble request. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, Little disclaimer here. I love, uh, I prefer over all others, the ESV translation of the scriptures. But in my humble opinion, I'm not a scholar, so I'll say in my humble opinion, they made a mistake here. You can look this up yourself. Bartimaeus did not call Jesus rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. It means professor. What he did do is he called him Rabboni. And Rabboni is is extracted from the same root, but it means something entirely different. Rabboni means master, it means prince, it means chief. What is Bartimaeus doing here? He's acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Bartimaeus is literally making a profession of faith, not just asking for a temporal healing. Rabboni. And that's what, Jesus was after. He was after that profession of Bartimaeus' faith when he asked him what he wanted him to do for him. He's God. He knew what Bartimaeus desired. He could see he was blind. But But Jesus wanted him to verbalize his heart's desire because that's how faith is designed to work. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Bartimaeus wanted to be free of the darkness, which he'd experienced physically throughout his lifetime. But he perceived he needed freedom from spiritual darkness as well. And so he confessed his faith in Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Now, faith that expects, that believes, is always based in a true word that God has said. There are people that teach a false gospel that will use some of the exact same scriptures I've used and talked about the power of your tongue and all those kind of things. That is not clearly what I'm saying. Faith that expects, faith that believes, is always based in a true word that God has said and not a subjective intuition. Ooh, I got a tickle, so I feel like I'm going to get a new car. Faith is not Jiminy Cricket singing when you wish upon a star. Therefore, because true faith is always rooted in God's word and what he has said, the results of real faith are always guaranteed, even if sometimes delayed. And Jesus said to him, here's the proof, go your way, your faith is has made you well. 
Jesus is on his way to pay the debt of this all this poor soul's sinning. And he stops and he listens to his petition and he answers his prayer. And Bartimaeus' faith was seen in his confidence about who Jesus really was and his awareness of what he really needed from him. And the promises were received when he boldly asked. I find it interesting. I don't know if you picked up on this, but I find it interesting that Jesus tells Bartimaeus, after the healing is complete, go your way. Bartimaeus is... Free to do whatever he wants to do. Jesus has freely given. He's not laying on him any demand or expectation. But what does Bartimaeus do with his freedom? Galatians tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But look what Bartimaeus does. Mark 10, 52. And immediately he recovered his his sight And followed Jesus on the way. Jesus said, go your way. And Bartimaeus said, Jesus, your way is my way. I'm following you. Jesus had given him life. And now the formerly blind beggar associates himself with Christ as he journeys toward death. In chapter 9, Jesus had said that those who follow him must take up their cross and follow him, and that's exactly what Bartimaeus is doing. That's what faith does, always. We have freedom as a gift from Christ, but when we are truly set free by Christ through faith, we desire nothing more than to be with him wherever he goes, whether it be to life or whether it be to death. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. Each one highlighting different details. But Mark alone gives us the detail of that this man's name was Bartimaeus. Why do you think that is? Well, we don't actually know why that is. But my theory is that he was so transformed by this event that he became a notable follower of Christ in the early days of the church. Perhaps Mark included his name because... Many people would have known him, would have known this story and, and, and found that interesting that the, the, the timing and the, and the, the impact this made on someone that they had known or heard of. Maybe or maybe not. Don't go, you know, preaching that as gospel because it's not, it's not in the, it's not uh, clearly something that we don't know from the word of God, but we don't know. But what I will say is that, that Bartimaeus is clearly a mirror reflection of the blind man that Jesus healed in chapter 8 that we talked about at the beginning, as well as the antithesis of what he represented. That man came reluctantly, led by a friend. Bartimaeus cried out. He threw off his beggarly garment. He sprang to his feet and he ran to Jesus. How do you come to Jesus? Do you come, did you come this morning reluctantly, led by your wife? Did you come because maybe we had asked you to do something in the service and you knew we'd get, you know, sideways with you if you didn't show up? That's why Gabe came to lead worship this morning. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Joking, joking. Did you come because you have friends here and and you hope to see him and spend a little time with him? Or is Jesus enough to move your heart to run towards his voice? Do you run to him trusting confidently and hoping and expecting his 
goodness to be revealed to you? Do you resign yourself to your identity as a blind person? Well, I'm no preacher, I'm no theologian, I'm, I'm, just, a, I'm just a guy, and I don't really understand the Bible, so I'm not going to read it. Do you, do you resign yourself to your identity as a blind person? Or do you cast off every single vestige of the old life for a brand new identity in Jesus Christ? Is your healing slow and imperfect? Do you have to struggle to discern the difference between trees and men, theoretically? Or do you rely on Jesus' mercy alone to help you see clearly? When Jesus patiently helps you, do you sink back into obscurity of your old life? We don't know the first blind man's name. No idea. Or are you known by your new identity, your new name in Christ Jesus? Jesus shows us in the story of Bartimaeus that we must all recognize who Jesus is by faith. That we must all call on his name and confess him to be Lord, believe in his promise, and follow him. Bartimaeus shows the perfect outworking of what Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross for all who will believe that he and he alone is the son of David, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, that you're a Savior who opens blind eyes, that you're a Savior who gives us a new identity, that you're a Savior who calls us to walk on the path where you are going and never denies us the fellowship of your grace, of your power, of your presence, of your love. We thank you for that, Lord. God, if we're honest, we are more like the first blind man than the second. And Lord, we still stumble around and see things so imperfectly. But Lord, we're asking for Bartimaeus miracles today. That you would open our eyes and let us see. Let us recover our sight. So that we can see you for who you really are, that we can trust you with all of our heart, that we can cast our old identity behind us and be servants of the Most High God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask our communion helpers to come forward and um, prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. Um, to those uh, gathered here today, um, just want to remind you that this supper is a covenant renewal act, and um, it reminds us of that glorious moment when we put our trust in Christ and we said, "You know, Son of David, have mercy on me." And it also reminds us that that the sacrifice that that gave us the forgiveness that I spoke of earlier came through a broken body and spilled blood that was poured out, as we say in the words of institution, this is, this is his body given for
for you. This is his blood poured out for you. And so you can come if you have made the same cry that Bartimaeus made. You can come with great rejoicing. But if you haven't, just remain in your seat. We don't want to uh, withhold something from you, but we don't want to invite you to make a mockery of the suffering of Christ, either to the condemnation of your own soul. But if you're unsure and you're longing to know the peace and know the healing and the restoration that Bartimaeus experienced, please, I implore you, come speak with me after the service. Come speak with Pastor David. Come speak with Gabriel. Let us share the gospel with you and show you how it applies to your life, what Christ has done for you. For the rest of you, I'm going to invite you to come forward, receive the elements this week. As we've been telling you, we are serving uh, both sacramental wine and um, grape juice. The, the trays are clearly labeled, so you can select whichever one you, you feel comfortable and, um, and then return to your seat, and we will take these together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks for this great show of mercy on behalf of the Son of David. Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus. Jesus, we... Thank you so much that you submitted to the Father's will. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have called us to the Savior's side and applied his saving work to us. And we pray, oh God, that you would make us uh, those who throw off our old self, who cry out after you, who run after you, who spring to our feet to find you. And Lord, we pray that in our blindness, in our darkness, that you would keep touching our eyes, that you would take our hand and lead us right to your side. And we thank you for this great sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to state this benediction over you. I think it's very appropriate for this morning. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.